I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and I'm here with Elinard Morgan, or should I call her Baroness Elinard Morgan, a Labour Assembly member for Midden West Wales and a former Euro MP. Uh, Elinard, you are Baroness Morgan of Ely, and of course you were brought up in the Ely part of Cardiff. Tell us about your roots. So I was brought up on one of the biggest council housing estates in Europe. Um, There were very high levels of deprivation on the estate, about 30% unemployment at one point. Um, And my father was a vicar on the estate, and our... Uh, house was a community centre more than a a family home so we had people coming and staying in our house effectively day in day out from all across the community so I was really brought up with this very rich uh, community environment where um, you know there were some severe social problems and they all came to our front door so it was a a fantastic upbringing um, and that is definitely Uh, the upbringing that shaped my politics because one of the things that I understood is that um, that actually the people of Ely are as able as clever as anyone else and what was happening is they weren't getting the breaks they weren't getting the opportunities Uh, and certainly that was one of the things that that led me into politics. Now of course your dad wasn't just the vicar he was also a councillor and uh, he became the leader of South Glamorgan County Council didn't he? There are some people who would sneer at that and say, what is a vicar doing getting involved in politics? What's your perspective on that? Well, his ministry always came first, and his uh, and he saw it as a ministry to the people in the area, but what he realised is that actually you couldn't heal the social problems of the area through prayer, that actually you need to do something a bit more practical. Um, his pol- his uh, religion was always a, a social motivation I think more than anything else and he realized that actually you could get more things done by becoming involved in politics and of course it was a, a solid labor area and uh, and therefore he he did get elected and was able to do things for the community that he couldn't have done uh, simply as a, a, a vicar. You're of course a fluent Welsh speaker which most people in Ely are not mm. how did that come about? Well, my mother's from West Wales and uh, from St David's in Pembrokeshire, um, and she was determined to ensure that we were going to be Welsh because she realised that living in Ely, that would have been very, very difficult unless we were sent to a Welsh-speaking school. So uh, I went to the first Welsh language uh, primary school and secondary school uh, in Cardiff, and, uh, of course, that took me out of the community, but I was exposed then to a very different world as well. And then you went on to a rather distinguished um, sixth form college, didn't you? You went to Atlantic College in the Vale of Glamorgan. How did that come about? So what happened is that we had a whole load of social events uh, happening to entertain the children in the area, particularly in the summer months. And uh, I got involved in the play schemes, uh, so it was just one of the local kids. And on one occasion, there were students from Atlantic College who came to entertain us. Uh, and then uh, I was taken as one of the Ely kids to Atlanta College to be entertained, and I was quite inspired by the place, uh, and um, I managed then to apply and to gain a scholarship. What do you think that did for you? I think what it did is to give me an international perspective and to give me a view on Wales that uh, I wouldn't have had otherwise. So I was able to really understand uh, that poverty was not something that was restricted to uh, an area like Ely. I don't think I'd come across hardly any uh, uh, foreign nationals in Ely. Uh, There were very few people uh, who were from outside the area. And suddenly I was exposed to this international environment with people from uh, over about 150 countries being represented there. And at the time, that was a very new concept. Today, you know, we've got this rich diversity in Cardiff that I think we should be really proud of. That was certainly not the situation 30 years ago. So, uh, of course, you will have studied the International Baccalaureate there, which is um, 
uh, qualification that uh, is highly respected internationally, isn't it? And there are those who say it's a shame that Wales hasn't uh, followed that particular route and that the Welsh baccalaureate is not as impressive as the international baccalaureate. But what did you get specifically out of that international baccalaureate, Lynette? I think it's the, the, the breadth of the academic experience is something that I think is really appreciated particularly now by employers. There's an understanding that if we are going to respond to the changing nature of work and society, we need to have adaptable individuals, and that's precisely, I think, what the, what the International Baccalaureate gave. Um, I actually became a member of the board of the International Baccalaureate later, which was uh, an interesting experience. Um, but it used to be based in Cardiff, of course. It, it was based in Cardiff for a while. The, the, um, but I, I think the... Uh, the, 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 what's happened is that many of the elements of the International Baccalaureate have been picked up by the Welsh Baccalaureate. It's a very different uh, experience, but it's certainly something, when I speak to employers, what they're interested in is in the development of individuals who are adaptable, who are enthusiastic, who can really articulate themselves in a way that employers would like them to and I think that is something that the Welsh Baccalaureate is developing in people so I'm a fan of the Welsh Baccalaureate I know that's not the case everywhere but I must say that the feedback I get from employers is a positive one. When you went on to university where did you go? I went to Hull University to study politics, uh, European studies so it was mostly politics, French and Spanish. That was John Prescott territory. It was John Prescott territory, and he did visit uh, on several occasions when I was a student there. What took you into sort of politics and Spanish then? Um, there were a number of reasons. Actually, as with so many other things, very, very often it's just something very personal. My best friend at the time was from Colombia, um, and uh, I was inspired. I wanted to speak to her family, and so that's one of the uh, great nudges that, that gave me uh, an urge to develop an interest and a love in languages. Uh, but also I took a year off prior to going to university and spent some time in, in Strasbourg University in France. And so that's where... At least you came to know much better I later. I did come to know that a lot better later, yeah. So um, what did you have in mind as a career when you were at university, Leonard? Well, I think, I think I was always interested in either the media or in politics. So... Uh, but I think you have to be absolutely clear with politics that there's no easy route, there's no guarantee, so you need to make sure that you've got lots of different irons in the fire. Uh, but definitely politics has always been uh, something I've felt really passionately about. But it's not politics as such, but it's actually an interest in making a difference to people's lives. That's what motivated me right from the beginning. Why is it that I've been given the breaks that other people uh, haven't been given or can't be given because they just haven't been given the opportunities. Because before your illustrious political career began, uh, I think you did a bit of journalism, didn't you? I did. I had a stint in, first of all, S4C, then in Heno, which is the daily daily magazine programme in, in Welsh, and then for the BBC. So uh, I did do a degree of journalism, which I loved. I loved uh, but then an opportunity came up that, that uh, I just felt that I had to throw my hat into the ring. Because you became uh, an MEP at a very young age, didn't you? How old were you when you were elected? I was elected at 27 years old. Um, but I think as significantly, I think it, it wasn't just that I was young, but, but also I was only the sixth woman, I think, in the history of Wales to be elected to a full-time political position. So... It was quite a, a, an odd thing to happen, let's say, in, for the Labour Party in Wales at the time. And how did it come about that you were selected? Um, the opportunity came up because the, the seat that was available was Middle West Wales. I obviously have very strong family roots in St David, so that was my, my link to Middle West Wales. I obviously had some European experience by then, not just through my degree, but I'd spent some time in Brussels as a stagiaire. Uh, it's working, my first job really was working for the socialist group in the European Parliament, so I could talk about uh, exactly how it worked. Um, but what was interesting was uh, I remember going through the selection process and um, going to the first selection meeting 
where um, of first of event that I, would invi- I was invited to, and I was asked. Um, I, I, di- I didn't get through that particular selection, and I asked afterwards why. Why? What is there that I can improve? And they said you can have your chance again. And so at the next meeting, um, I was able to. I just realised that I had to confront the situation. So dressing up like like my mother was not going to wash in this instance. And uh, in that selection meeting, before I started, I made it absolutely clear to the members there that they belonged to the Labour Party, that as members of the Labour Party, they did not believe in discrimination or should not believe in discrimination, and that they could judge me on anything they wanted in that room. But if they were to judge me on the basis of my gender or my, my age, then they shouldn't be sitting in the room. So... You know, very. It's very difficult. It was very, very difficult. But sometimes you just have to confront potential prejudice, and I think sometimes if you point it out to people, then uh, they they understand what where you're coming from. So you think there was definitely a problem there for you. I don't think it was a problem for me. I think it was a problem for most women at the time in the Labour Party. There's no question about it. You know, the, the fact is that throughout history, I simply can't believe that, you know, up until that point, only five women were good enough to be selected as candidates. Uh, you know, you have to accept, I think, that there are barriers and uh, issues that need to be confronted there, yes. And of course, the strange thing was that it, it wouldn't just be the men who had an aversion to uh, selecting women, there were also women who were opposed to it as well. What what do you think is uh, the reason for that? It's very interesting because obviously later then we had a big debate when we were trying to set up the assembly here and realising that we could finish up with the same kind of situation where we would it would be uh, an assembly that would be utterly dominated by men unless we put some kind of structures in place. We uh, campaigned very vigorously for for twinning to happen within the Labour Party, which meant that we would get equality in terms of representation uh, in, in the assembly. And we had to fight a really difficult fight, and that fight was uh, was carried out from my office. And so I think... We had a huge amount of support, there's no question about that, but there were, a lot of the most vocal people, even at that time, you're absolutely right, were women. What do you attribute that opposition to? I think something. some of it is about change, some of it is about um, actually people being comfortable with the status quo, but sometimes you just need to confront change and you need to, again, ensure that those opportunities are available. But... It seems pretty clear to me that had we not had a mechanism that the Assembly would have been a very, very different place. What was it that prompted you to go to the European Parliament as opposed to Westminster? I was, from I think that experience in Atlanta College, always interested in an international dimension to politics and understanding that the world is changing, that the the world is becoming globalised, interconnected, we were beginning to talk about uh, environmental issues in a way that we hadn't talked about before, understood that environment doesn't understand boundaries, uh, understanding that the economy is also interconnected, that was a fundamental. So, um, yes, I think I was always interested in, um, in that international dimension. But also, I must say that I've never liked the, the, the atmosphere within the House of Commons. I think it's a it, it's a very aggressive kind of atmosphere. It's not an, a, an atmosphere that, that I feel I would be comfortable with. So you get to Europe. It's a strange institution, isn't it, because it doesn't have a government, mm. European Parliament, a number of, uh, of groups which are all essentially coalitions between parties of um, a roughly like mind from the different uh, countries. Uh, So I suppose there's a coalition which exists within each of those groups and then the body as a whole uh, has a more consensual approach or uh, at least seeks to have a more consensual approach in the House of Commons. How did you go about the job? I think uh, first of all 
there's an understanding that you have an allegiance to your your political group, your your Labour group, but that there's that broader political family, the socialist group of Europe. And I think that was where that international perspective really makes you understand that what you what sh should be driving politics is an ideology, not a nationalism. And, and that's really something that came across very, very clearly. So if you wanted to achieve things for, to, to help people that where you were driven ideologically, so if you uh, wanted to make sure that there was a redistribution of wealth throughout Europe from the richer areas to the poorer areas, then you had to make a coalition with fellow-minded uh, MEPs uh, in order to deliver that. And that gave you that breadth of um, and a, a dynamic that was completely different from any other political institution. And it was only through that cross-border consensus that actually we could deliver change. And that's why, I think, one of the reasons why the institution, for, for all its faults, actually there's uh, an understanding that together we can achieve a lot more than we can uh, separately. So you can understand my absolute devastation uh, with the result of the Brexit referendum. Well, do you know what? I remember, and I was thinking about this the other day, actually, meeting you in a bar <laughs> in the Strasbourg <laughs> Parliament uh, when you were an MEP, obviously, and uh, it was lunchtime, and I was meeting various MEPs, but I got this arrangement to meet you for a drink, and uh, I think you were on soft drinks at the time, actually, when yes. I probably wasn't, uh, <laughs> and um, we were having a, uh, you know, a pleasant, interesting chat, and then suddenly I noticed this noise coming from the other end of the bar and there were a group of men who had these braying voices and were really quite oppressive in the way in which they were functioning and uh, I said who the hell are these people and of course it was Mr Farage and his chums mm. so and that was quite a few years ago mm. uh, Mr Farage obviously was an MEP uh, and he remains an MEP at the moment um, for, for a long time what sort of change came about within the European Parliament as a consequence of the arrival of the likes of Mr Farage and other populists from other countries? Did it in any way sour the institution? Well, you've got to remember that at the time, nobody would heard of Nigel Farage. He was still a very unknown voice. And so actually his impact on the institution was very, very small to begin with. It is only later that people started to hear his voice in a very different way. But I, I think, uh, although in the bar he was making a lot of noise, I don't think he garnered much attention on the floor of the House. That has certainly changed over the years. But I, I think what was difficult uh, for uh, people like me was actually it wasn't just Farage. There were a whole load of other people, some including neo-fascists, who were uh, sitting in the same chamber as me, and that was very, very uncomfortable. But the thing to do with these people is to take them on with the power of your argument. I think the problem we have in more recent times is that actually, whilst we have always thought that we can beat uh, other arguments through rational debate, actually now it seems that emotional debate seems to be winning the day, uh, and we probably need to think more carefully as politicians about how we communicate and to make sure that we understand the need to connect emotionally, not just rationally. One of the problems as well, perhaps, is that dealing with social issues is a lot more complex than the kind of soundbite mentality which these uh, populists uh, subscribe to. And it's very easy to grab people's attention uh, if you're a demagogue who has got a very simplistic message with a simplistic solution, like it's the immigrants who are causing all the problems, they're taking all our jobs, etc. Whereas the reality is that social change and the challenges that our society faces are a lot more complicated than that. It's a challenge, isn't it, for a politician generally to be able to communicate with people who um, perhaps are not used to considering the complexities of things and are susceptible to be influenced by, by people who have simplistic solutions which are in fact no solution at all. 
I think that's right. And I think it's a real challenge for us as politicians. And I think that also perhaps underlines and demonstrates why referenda, for example, are, are very difficult. Because particularly if you're offered a binary choice without the opportunity to explore uh, the implications of the fallout from one particular side or the other, the, the, the consequences, as we have seen uh, from the Brexit debate, can be dramatic, can cause economic chaos and uh, can cause massive social upheaval. I would always, therefore, hope that we would be able to, as we have done in the past, revert to a system where, in an ideal world, we allow our elected representatives to have that uh, voice. I think once you've taken that view, however, we've had the referendum, the only way to unpick that now is perhaps to go back to the people and to ask uh, for an alternative uh, vote and to see if, having heard a more sophisticated argument over a number of years, having heard the consequences, having understood that the arguments put by Brexiteers, for example, were not uh, exactly um, truthful at all times, uh, that there may be an opportunity and a need to revisit that vote. So can you still envisage circumstances now where it is possible that we could arrive at a situation where there is uh, a people's vote, as it is described, because neither the Conservative Party nor your party, the Labour Party, are currently in favour of such a move? So how do we get to a situation where there is a referendum again? Well, let's just be clear that the worst of all scenarios would be for us to fall off a cliff and have a no, no deal. And that, that's still a real possibility. I think the offer that's on the table at the moment with the white paper is not as good as being a member of the European Union. Uh, it means that we have to take the rules and we have no influence over the rules. Now, we'll have to see if Parliament is in a position to accept those those views or not but if they are unable to make a decision then I would hope and I think it's very very it would be very very tight in terms of time scale that there would be an opportunity to uh, put it back to the public and yes to have another people's vote. And of course it's wrong to assume that the EU will necessarily accept the terms laid out in this white paper. Well this white paper to me looks like lots and lots of cake. It looks like uh, we have had a pick and mix EU, and it's very clear to me that what drives the European Union is not just economics, it's politics as well. They want to keep this the project alive, and if we're able to pick and mix, then why wouldn't other members choose to go down that route as well? It's pretty clear to me uh, that the better option would be for us economically, certainly in Wales, to remain part of the EU. So when you were campaigning for a Remain vote a couple of years ago, at what stage did it become clear to you that uh, there was going to be a Leave vote? Well, immediately after the Assembly election, I turned to campaigning for the referendum. I spent most of my time in West Wales campaigning, and it was very, very hostile, at least a month out. So I had huge concerns very, very early on, and it proved that that, it was indeed the case. Did you get personal abuse? There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of abuse on the streets, and um, if we were honest, very few campaigners as well. I remember being a bit shocked, actually, quite shocked, when Alan Johnson came to uh, Barry Island, and Alan Johnson, of course, was the leader of the mm. Labour Remain campaign. And, um, I mean, he's quite a genial character, uh, not a confrontational man at all. And uh, he was walking down for a, a sort of photo shoot in a little press conference, and there were people shouting at him, traitor, mm. uh, with venom. You know, mm. he was spitting this stuff out, and uh, I found that quite disturbing, actually, because it was something which, uh, and I've been around for an awfully long time, mm. and I'd never really experienced that kind of level of abuse before. Uh, at an election time in the UK. I mean, obviously, you have very robust mm. elections. 
and uh, people disagree, but that level of personal abuse and people being shouted at and called traitor because they were campaigning for a particular uh, vote in a referendum uh, was uh, was really quite uh, quite shocking. And I spoke to a number of politicians who have said that they were shocked by the, the level of vituperation that was around at the time. So what you said ties in with um, with what others say. Why do you think it roused such uh, negative emotions from people? I think the Brexit campaign really played on the worst fears of people and the parts that made them feel vulnerable. Um, and I think in particular, uh, we haven't, as politicians, made a, a good fist of selling and of explaining why, for example, immigration is something which benefits our country than, uh, rather than is something that, that hinders and, and, and hurts our country. It was definitely, of all the themes that came up, in those vicious terms on the streets, immigration was the, the most notable. So, um, a way forward on that, do you think that uh, as a consequence of all of the concerns that have been expressed by big companies like um, Airbus, uh, uh, etc., Land Rover, uh, that the message has now got through to people that it would be a very bad thing from an economic point of view? I'm very clear that if we were to have a people's vote, it wouldn't be an easy ride once again. Uh, if you look at the opinion polls, they haven't shifted significantly. Um, but uh, I think that possible damage to our economy, to our society uh, and to our nation would be of such a consequence that actually it is worth us revisiting this issue. So you left the European Parliament... Why did you leave the European Parliament? Well, I, ha I had had three terms in the European Parliament. It was very uh, taxing, uh, physically, apart from anything else, just back, back and forth to Brussels and Strasbourg. But more than anything else, I, by then I'd had a family, and I was very keen to make sure I came home and spent a bit more time with the family. So that was the, the main motivation uh, but also, I think, after 15 years in politics, I wanted to go and experience something different to get some... Uh, I think there's a feeling uh, that actually people who do nothing but politics can be out of touch, and I was determined to throw myself into something different to get some real-life experience, with a view, yes, to coming back into politics at some point, but I wanted to uh, have a period... That where I was very clearly at home and to have a, a broader experience. Because you're working for an electricity company, right? Mm -hmm. How did you like that? I think it was really important for people in the Labour Party in particular to understand that if we want to uh, help to finance our social services and our public services in Wales, that we need to now, more than ever, grow the economy um, and I didn't feel like I had enough of an understanding of how that should happen. So when I was appointed as a director of low carbon energy for Wales, for, for Swaylak, um, it was an opportunity to understand why a company like that would invest in Wales, why they wouldn't invest in Wales. What is it that drove these people? I think they realised pretty early on that I was a spy. Um, but but they, they, I think, understood also that actually there was something in it for them. They had an understanding from somebody who understood Wales um, of what I could contribute to their company. And I was really thrilled to be able to land a £7 million investment in the Treforest uh, area. So we developed the Swalex Smart Energy Centre. Uh, and uh, I was very proud to be able to say that that was something that I achieved while I was there. And then you went to the House of Lords, and usually when politicians go to the House of Lords it's to put them out of grass, but that wasn't the case in your case. Well, it, it was very unusual and um, not something that I'd aspired to in any way. <laughs> and, and you're absolutely right, I did hesitate before accepting because I did think that 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 is something that people do, do towards the end of their careers. 
But what that did allow me was a political platform. Um, and as I say, you cannot plan a life in politics. You have no idea when and if the cards are going to fall your way. Uh, and therefore, that did give me a platform for me to say some of the things that perhaps I, was, I wanted to say that I might never get again. Because you became an opposition spokeswoman, didn't you, quite soon? And what were you getting involved with in those days? The, the two areas where I focused, I was the Shadow Minister for Wales uh, in the House of Lords, and obviously um, I did a huge amount of work on the Wales Bill. Uh, and secondly, I became the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, leading the debate on Brexit before the referendum. So uh, really ha trying to formulate what that referendum, uh, the, the, the build-up to the referendum, what that should look like. But you weren't satisfied with that because <laughs> you wanted to have a domestic uh, elected political career, didn't you, again? At what stage did you decide you wanted to stand for the Assembly? I think I've always thought at some point that I would like to come home and, and stand for the Assembly, which was an institution that I fought very hard to establish, that I, where I'd been part of the group that set up the original standing orders. Um, so I, I think I always wanted to come home, but again, you know, you have to take the opportunities when you can. And uh, I went for what, what was actually a very difficult seat to win, a very unpredictable seat. Uh, so uh, to an extent that was in fate's hands uh, rather than my ability to sway the electorate. Of course, standing for Labour in Mid and West Wales, to win you have to be the beneficiary of your colleague's failure, don't you? Because of the way that the PR system yeah. works. So if other people had won mm -hmm. uh, first-past-the-post constituency seats, you wouldn't have got elected. Did that trouble you at all? I, I was very fatalistic about the situation. I campaigned very hard in all the, the seats, including places like Llanelli, including places like Carmarthen West, where, yes, you know, had we won uh, certainly some of those seats, uh, I wouldn't have been elected, but I understood the rules of the game. Did you have ministerial aspirations pretty soon after being elected, or probably before being elected, I would imagine? I was very clear before I came in that I had to know why I wanted to be an Assembly member. And one of the things I was keen to do, I looked for where I thought there were kind of political gaps that needed to be filled. One of them, for me, was the need to develop a, an economic programme for rural Wales. So I was very clear about that. That was something that I wanted to do. And the second thing was um, I was very keen to see, and one of the first speeches I made here was on the need to develop a national care service for Wales. So those are the two kind of thing, reasons and things that I wanted to deliver on uh, when I was first elected. But you could never have been a minister in the European Parliament. Um, you could have been a minister in the House of Lords, uh, but there'd have to be a Labour government, obviously. There's a Labour government in Wales, so your best chance of becoming a minister and actually taking part in government and being able to deliver on the things that you want to deliver on is by being a minister in this administration. So you must have had aspirations to be a minister, presumably before you were elected. I think um, with the experience I can bring to the table, then I hope that I would be able to contribute, yes, at the ministerial table. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, Carwin uh, was willing to promote me fairly early on. Now, your, uh, one of your responsibilities, of course, is the Minister for the Welsh Language. And uh, I know that you're obviously very keen on the Welsh language because for many years you've been one of the people who has been promoting the Labour Party at the Nationalised Dead Board with your uh, Cymdeithis Cledwin, named after Cledwin Hughes, uh, the early Secretary of State for Wales and um, MP for Anglesey. And therefore, as a fluent Welsh speaker, it makes sense for you to be a Welsh language minister. But there are those in certain organisations, Cymdeithis Uriaith Gymraeg to name but one, uh, who are not the greatest fans of yours, uh, Elined, because you haven't gone down the route that they would like you to go down, which is to extend obligations to the private sector uh, in terms of providing Welsh language services. Why is that? 
I'm really clear that we have a goal now to reach a million Welsh speakers by 2050. Now, that's a really ambitious goal. And I'm also clear that if you want to change a culture, you need to do it with a carrot rather than a stick. I know that children on the yards in Welsh-speaking schools, many, many of them speak English on those school yards. You can offer to punish them if they don't, but the fact is that they will simply carry on. You have to encourage and conjole and give them the incentives. And that has been my driving motivation, to encourage, to cajole, to give incentives. And that's why we're shifting the emphasis. Uh, I think that the, the rules uh, in terms of pushing public sector have been quite successful. But we've got to a point now where actually we are already finding it difficult to recruit enough Welsh speakers to be able to deliver on uh, the initiatives and policies that we're asking uh, those public sectors to deliver through the medium of Welsh. So it is about building the capacity in the system uh, before we can go further. So are you saying that at a slightly later stage you would be happy to extend obligations to the private sector? I am saying very clearly that we will be developing a bill uh, where our, at the moment we don't have the right to impose those uh, rules on the private sector. We will develop a bill where we will have the right to develop those, the right to impose those duties on the private sector. Uh, I certainly at this point have no appetite to impose that. I think our focus should be on the 80% of people who don't speak Welsh that we need to encourage and cajole and to convince them that it is worth adopting and, and learning the language. But don't the two things go together because if you lived in a truly bilingual society you would have a situation where you went to a, uh, a shop, let's say particularly a, a supermarket or even a discount store uh, like Trago Mills, for example, in Merthyr Tidville, where you would be able to see everything priced up in Welsh as well as in English. And if you had that, and if children were going into such shops and saw that, wouldn't that act as an encouragement to them with their Welsh language? I'm not sure if it would, uh, but I think there's a, a bigger problem than that. When I was working at at Swaylek, for example, I appointed a Welsh language officer. That had never been done before. The company itself were very, very keen to give a, a Welsh language service. They identified all the Welsh speakers in their company. That amounted to quite a high number of people who'd gone to Welsh speaking schools, and those people were not willing or were not confident enough to use the Welsh language. So even if that we had imposed a duty on that company who was keen and ready and willing to act, it would have been very difficult for them to, to act on that because the, even the people who we have trained and developed uh, didn't feel confident enough to use their Welsh language. So we have to develop the capacity and the confidence of people first, I think, before we start castigating people for breaking a law where they would like to actually fulfil that law. But there are some people who run these private sector businesses who actually have quite a disdainful attitude towards the Welsh language, and um, not just talking about supermarkets, but um, there are examples, aren't there, where people have been working in cafes, speaking Welsh, uh, or in chain stores actually where um, you know they've been they've been talking to their colleagues in Welsh and the bosses have intervened and told them that you can't do that even though they're in a Welsh speaking area I mean all for heaven's sake in Wales anyway that sort of attitude is completely unacceptable today isn't it? It's absolutely unacceptable and the rights of Welsh speakers absolutely must be honoured so the question is to what extent should be uh, going further down that private sector route there are great examples of where, for example, supermarkets have been embracing the Welsh language. Lidl's and Aldi's, it's very interesting that very often they're, they're international companies who are more willing to do this uh, rather than some of our homegrown companies. So, yes, of course, we need to make sure that the rights of Welsh speakers are always uh, underlined and honoured. But at this point, 
uh, I, I don't think it's necessary to uh, impose those rules on the private sector. Have you been lobbied by the private sector um, with people saying, don't do this, it'll cost us too much money, etc.? I'm just trying to think. If I have recently, I, I don't think I have recently, I've certainly heard that, that argument before. Maybe you'd get it if you said we're going to do it now. I think... I think if that were the case, then, then then that probably would be the case. But they should be absolutely clear that I am developing a power to allow me to impose this regulation. And if they don't move, and if they don't look like they are willing to move, then we can impose that, uh, that, that regulation in future. But without compulsion, isn't it a bit of a naive hope to imagine that these people are just going to say, OK, we'll do it anyway? Look, they need to be aware that we are developing the capacity to be able to impose these things on them. Um, but there's also a, a different issue, and that is the complexity of the current model of imposing these regulations. It's a highly complex, very long-winded uh, 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 programme to impose these rules that are tweaked and changed depending on where you are in the country. Now. I find that really, I think it's really difficult then for people to know what their rights are in relation to the Welsh language. So I am also very keen to simplify the process before we go any further because the current process is extremely complex. What sort of timescale would you put on um, extending obligations to the private sector? Um, I don't want to put a timescale on it yet because... Uh, I think there are some that would come before, so we're already looking at water companies, uh, for example, so th th there are some which will come before others, um, and it depends to what extent they have a, a, a relationship with the public. So uh, there are lots of detailed questions that we need to look through before we start imposing them, but at this point in time, my priority is to focus on developing and encouraging and uh, increasing the number of Welsh speakers. So I'm firmly fixed on uh, expanding Welsh medium education, making sure we've got enough teachers, making sure that we are up to date in terms of technology in the Welsh language, uh, making sure that we can give support to businesses who want to use the Welsh language, who want to do the right thing, and that, I think, is encouraging them. Uh, we've got to give them that support, and we are switching to give that support. So we have Cymraeg Business, for example, where people can phone up now for f and, and get information for free and get translations for free that they weren't able to access before. You've said, Leonard, haven't you, that you would like to be the leader of Welsh Labour. Uh, there's an election which is due to take place before too long. How many Assembly members have offered their support to you? Well, I think that um, some people are waiting to hear what manifesto commitments that I'm likely to give and what I'd like to do. And I, it's, a, it's a shame, actually, that not many have waited to hear ideas because I would hope that what leadership should be about is ideas as much as it is about personalities. Because uh, I do feel that at this point we do need to refresh our ideas. We've been in government for a very long time in Wales now. We need to sound different, we need to look different, we need to deliver differently. There are massive challenges ahead of us in Wales. We, If Brexit happens, that will be extremely difficult for us. I think with my uh, European experience, that could be extremely valuable. Um, in terms of the ageing population, we need to really prepare ourselves economically for that shift that's going to happen. Um, and I'd like to see, for example, uh, eco-homes developed for old people in every community in Wales, which could grow, uh, help to grow the economy in every part of Wales uh, and release housing for younger people. Um, I think also we've got to understand that the world of work is changing significantly um, that automation is going to really pose challenges, in particular some of those low-paid workers. So we need to think about how practically we're going to deliver lifelong learning uh, and embrace technology rather than see it as a threat. 
And we need to understand that, that the way we deliver public services, I think, needs to be tailored much more to the individual. And uh, we, we need to make sure that we're responding uh, with technology, where possible, uh, to the changing needs of society. Now, there are some people who are saying, who are arguing, um, Debbie Wilcox uh, argued this, and indeed Carwin Jones himself has um, come down on the support of this um, idea, although I don't think he's prepared to nominate you, uh, that there is the need to have a woman on the ballot paper. Now, I actually spoke to Leslie Griffiths about this when she came out in support of Mark Drakeford. And I said, you know, there will be people who think that as a woman cabinet secretary, you should be supporting the candidacy of a woman. Why are you not prepared to do that? And she said, the important thing is to get the best person for the job and that gender plays no part in that. Now, you're a very intelligent woman, Elinette, and I say that without seeking to in any way patronise you, um, but you have ideas of your own which you can put forward as a politician. They're valid ideas, some people may disagree with them, but they're valid ideas not because you're a, a woman politician, but because you are the person that you are who's advocating them. I mean, would you be happy to be seen as some kind of token woman candidate? To be honest, I would feel quite uncomfortable with that because I would hope that my vast experience of, uh, of, of internationally, uh, but also in terms of politics and the connections that I have and the fresh ideas that I can bring to the table would be enough to allow me to, to be nominated. But I... I realise now that actually um, this is this is something that has happened throughout history. Now, obviously, it's not. Uh, I wouldn't blame people if people want to support a, an alternative candidate. I understand that people develop personal connections and personal relationships over a number of years. Uh, and let me be absolutely clear that. Um, uh, I think Mark Drakeford uh, is a, a, an exceptional um, uh, uh, politician, uh, but I do think that there needs to be a space for debate, for new ideas, uh, for fresh ideas. I think the country is yearning for change, uh, and I would like to think that I could at least make a contribution to that debate uh, and, and would be saddened, of course, if... Uh, I wasn't able to uh, get the uh, relevant number of uh, nominations. If you're a betting woman, hmm. do you think you will get on the ballot paper? Um, I am betting, and I'm very hopeful that that, that will be the case, but I certainly uh, am in the hands of my friends and colleagues here in the Assembly, in that sense. Because nobody else, apart from Mark Drakeford, has managed to get to the starting line yet, have they? Do you find that surprising? Look, there's huge admiration for Mark Drakeford here. There's no question about that. But I think that out in the country, and I think that in the party as well, beyond the Cardiff bubble, people want a debate. People want to hear new ideas. Um, and at the very least, they want to have a discussion in terms of the future direction of Wales. Things are moving at a significant pace uh, in the world. We need to be more dynamic. We need to be more responsive. We need to be more nimble. Uh, and I think we, we need to have a degree of energy that is uh, that, that perhaps uh, I feel that I could bring to the table. Mark Drakeford has said that if he is elected, he would stand down in the middle of the next term. You'll still be around then? Look, I'm not looking beyond uh, the, the next few months at the moment. I think that this is the time for debate, for ideas, and that's what I've been uh, looking to do. I've been all around Wales uh, asking people beyond the bubble, what are their opinions? What should we be changing? The, the world is changing. The world of work is changing. You look, for example, at 
the massive growth in terms of self-employment in Wales. And what is our answer to that? What is our response to that shift in terms of the direction of travel? Uh, obviously, we need to be concerned about bogus self-employment, uh, but there are people who are genuinely self-employed who could do with a bit of support. We're giving some support, but there are 14% of people now, for example, who are self-employed compared to 9% uh, who are involved in manufacturing. You know, these are significant shifts uh, and we need to be responding to them and we need to be thinking differently. We need to be thinking about climate change and what is our response to that. We need to be thinking about mental health. We need to be thinking about the ageing population. You know, these are changes where actually just sticking to the same routine and same, is, is, I think, will be uh, very difficult for us. to, to and, and I think before anything else, before anything else, we have to understand that what drives everything here and what is, is the economy. And what I would want to do is to focus absolutely on increasing uh, the, the, the wealth of Wales, uh, on improving the economy. And I don't think that a, a response which means that we redistribute wealth from the poor to the really poor is going to be an answer to our questions. We have to increase and grow the cake particularly now since we will be having our own tax raising powers and we'll be taking tax from Wales. In the past, we have been dependent on a cheque coming from London. We will get a cheque from London in future, but it won't be nearly as big because they'll be expecting us to raise our own revenues. And have you got any ideas about how you would raise those revenues in terms of income tax? Would you put income tax up? No, I think at this point, the one thing that, that I would like to explore uh, and I've said that uh, when I first came into the Assembly, is that I, I would like to think about um, care, uh, developing a national care service for Wales. That would be something I would like to explore. I think there are some interesting ideas around that that have been developed in the past few months. Um, so, so that would be something I'd like to explore. But let's be clear, let's be clear that only 5,000 people in Wales pay the top rate of tax. Only 125,000 people uh, pay the second uh, tier down. We are not a rich country. Um, and so we've got to be very, very careful. When we are asking people, and let's remember that 50% of the people in Wales don't have more than £100 in savings. That's the situation in Wales today. So we've got to be very, very careful if we're asking people uh, to contribute more to in terms of taxation. Would Wales be better off if it was an independent country? It's absolutely not. I mean, let's be let's be clear. We get £16 billion a year uh, in terms of transfers from London now. You'd have to be very clear about where you're going to get that money from. Leonard Morgan, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.